0: The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 15? Or if you want to reach for the Bible under the pew in front of you, that would be fine. Or if you just prefer to soak without looking at the book and listen to my exposition of it, that's okay too. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 to 31. We'll read these two verses and then I think we'll pray together before we move into the exposition. Now I urge you, brethren, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome about a situation that he's going to be facing in Judea or Jerusalem shortly as he carries money to the poor there that he's been collecting and he's afraid that he might be... Hurt by the unbelievers and rejected by the believers. So he asked for prayer. He says, now I urge you brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and secondly that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Let's pray. Lord, You have so much to teach us from these verses. I ask for Your help. I ask for help for me, for strength, for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I ask for Your people here to be given illumination and ears to hear. I ask that You would overcome any resistance that's there to Your Word and Your truth. I ask that you'd protect us from the devil. And I ask that any unbelievers in this room would be saved. Lord, make your word powerful under the conversion of people. I just read this morning, Lord, in Matthew, where you, you came into Galilee of the Gentiles so that the prophecy might be fulfilled those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, there are people in darkness now who need to see light. And even this text about prayer you can use to that end. Convert, strengthen believers, lift up the downcast, humble the proud, restore the Drifting away, clarify the minds of the confused, O Lord. Give fellowship to the lonely, reconcile the estranged. Lord, the Word of God is so rich. Apply it now to every need, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday we began with verse 30. And I promised you that we'd move to verse 31, and we will. But, before we go to verse 31, I want to... Uh, ask two questions about verse 30, about prayer in verse 30. Number one, why does Paul give the Roman Christians incentives to pray for him instead of just telling them to pray? He's got authority to just say, pray for me, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm scared and I want you to pray for me, just pray. Why does he give them two incentives? You see what they are there? We talked about them last week. By the Lord Jesus Christ, that's incentive number one. And by the love of the Spirit, that's incentive number two. Why does he give incentives like that? Here's my answer. It is God's customary way of engaging the will of man by putting truth in the mind of man. It's God's customary way of engaging the will and stirring up the will of a person by putting truth in the mind. Here's another way to say it. God draws your heart into action. He inclines your heart a certain way by presenting to your mind God-centered... Pictures of who he is that would incline you a certain way. So that when you act that way, he gets the credit. So if you were to ask me, why is it God's way to incline the human heart, not mainly by direct impulses with no mental components, I would say... The reason he does not ordinarily do it that way is because he means to be glorified by the way we act. And if you pray, for example, that's the issue right here. He wants us to strive together in prayer. He wants our wills to incline toward prayer. So how does he get them there? And he says, I beseech you by the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. There's a truth. Think on that truth with your mind. Focus on it. Jesus is Lord. And here's another truth. The love of the Holy Spirit. Think on the Holy Spirit. He's real. And he loves. And he produces love. Now, dwell on those so that as your heart is drawn out to pray, there would be reasons. And when somebody asks you, why are you praying? you wouldn't just say, I just feel like it, just an impulse, I don't know why. God would not get as much glory if you gave that answer as if you said, the reason I'm praying is because God has shown me in his word that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Lord of the universe. He is Lord over those people down in Judea who are threatening Paul's life And if I pray to him, that lordship will come into play in such a way that their ill will is restrained. And the second reason I'm praying is that the Holy Spirit is a real person. He's characterized by love. He produces love in his people, and he is love flowing into his people. And when I pray for those saints down there that they would love Paul, the Holy Spirit's going to fall on them and they're not going to reject him, they're going to love him. The answer to the first question of um, why incentives, why incentives is that when our wills are are drawn out to uh, act by God-centered truth in the mind, it gives more glory to the Father when we act. And we're not just acting on impulse. We have reason to act. Now, the second question is, why does Paul ask for more people to join him in prayer? Why does he ask for more people to join him in prayer? Notice what he says. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So Paul's already praying for me. Paul's praying for himself. So I ask the question, Paul, if you're praying for yourself and God hears your prayer, why do you need anybody else to pray with you? Why are you so urgent about getting Roman Christians to pray with you? Doesn't God hear your prayers? If uh, my son calls me on the telephone, he says, Daddy, please pick up Mommy at the library. Mommy is just as picked up at the library as if four of my sons call me and say, Pick up Mommy at the library. She doesn't get any more picked up at the library than if one of them called me and said, pick mommy up at the library. So, if Paul says, deliver me from the unbelievers in Jerusalem and make my ministry acceptable to the saints, and God says, all right, I'll do that, he doesn't do it any more than if 500 people in Rome ask him to do it. So, what's going on here? Ask that question. I have, why prayer meetings? Why, why are we meeting together in St. Paul tonight, with the Minnesota Baptist Conference, with several hundred people, to beseech the Lord? Why, why? Why won't my prayers do that, or yours? Or we all get alone in our closets and pray? Why prayer chains? Why prayer groups? Why is that? Now, there are more than there's more than one answer to this question, but here's one answer. Taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, I'll read it to you, it goes like this. God will yet deliver us, as Paul's been in trouble, and now he's going to be delivered, he believes. God will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. So here he is again, asking for prayers. You will help us through your prayers. Why? So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through many prayers. So you see the reasoning of Paul here? Get that, it's a complex sentence, but you got to see the logic. God will help us through your prayers in order that thanks may arise for many persons on our behalf, in response to many prayers. So here's a simple answer. One answer. There are others. The reason God wills that we involve many people in praying for one thing, like deliverance in Judea, the reason he wants to involve many people is because when many people lift their hands in dependence upon the Lord... When the answer comes, those same hands will be lifted in praise to the Lord and gratitude to the Lord. God wants to spread out the conscious dependence upon him in prayer so that he will elicit from the church an explicit corporate public gratitude to him. So when we get the final word on the finances from 1995... The reason we took some time in December to have corporate praying is so that when you hear that right now we're within 3% of making our budget, uh, maybe we'll be a little closer when all the checks are counted, we will all together, and we should right now already say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we're that close after being so far back in the early part of December. So, my answer to this question is that he beckons, he beseeches, he urges the Roman people to pray so that when the answer comes and he arrives there in Rome, he will tell them stories of deliverance and they will praise God for answering their prayers. So now, there are my two questions from verse 30. And they're both intended to set the stage for verse 31, Like this. One was, why are there incentives for praying, And the other is, why do so many people get involved in praying? And the answer to the first one was, there are incentives to pray because our will is to be drawn out in prayer by God-centered mental pictures of truth so that when we act, He gets glory. And we don't just act on impulse irrationally so that we can't give any account for why we're acting. God gets glory because it's God-centered truth in the mind that's leading to God-centered action through the will. And the answer to the second one was a lot of people are involved in praying so that God gets more glory and God gets more credit for all the mercy poured out in answer to prayer. And so both of them are the same, namely God or the glory of God. Or God-centeredness. And the reason I ask those two questions in this way is so that when we get to verse 31 now, there will be a God-centered stage set for the God-centered truth that I'm going to state. One simple truth I'm going to unfold from verse 31, and it goes like this. Prayer changes people's wills. Or let me be more precise. Prayer uh, moves God to change people's wills, or God changes people's wills in answer to prayer. That's my point from verse 31. And it's a very God-centered point, because we don't like God tampering with our wills sometimes. There's a lot of people who build a whole theology that protects God from tampering with their wills, and say, He's got no right to tamper with their wills. That's my Universe. Hands off of my will. And prayer, in this verse, teaches... If prayers are going to be answered like this, God's going to change wills. Now, let's see this. Verse 31. That I may be delivered. Pray for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. As his first request. And secondly that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So he's got two concerns, right? He's going down there to Jerusalem, and he knows that's a hostile city toward him, and he fears for his life, and so he says to these Roman Christians, 1,300 miles away, would you please pray that unbelievers who have hostile wills toward me would be restrained in their willing? Prevented in exercising their wills of harm on me. Pray that God would move inside their wills and stop that. Hinder that. Influence that. That way and not that way. And then the second request is that he's concerned about Christians who might reject him and make fun of him or regard him as uh, proud or... Um, paternalistic. Here you are going all over the world collecting money for the poor in our city making us look like welfare cases. No thank you. He knows that all kinds of deceit could emerge about him and the church itself could say we don't want you here. You're the apostles to the Gentiles so you go elsewhere. We'll take Peter and, and the others. So see you later Paul. So he prays God I mean, he says, Romans, you, 1,300 miles away, you launch a prayer missile, and it'll land in the wills of believers who are starting to incline towards ill will toward me, and your prayer, by God, will incline their wills back this way. Change their wills. Influence their wills. That's what prayer implies. Prayer implies the right and the authority and the power of God to move into human willing and divert it this way or that way. Now, that means that Matthew Henry was absolutely right on this verse when he wrote this. As God must be sought unto for the restraining of the ill will of our enemies... So also he must be sought unto for the preserving and the increase of the goodwill of our friends, for God has the hearts of both the one and the other in his hand. God has the hearts of all men in his hand. Now that's a simple truth. It's absolutely mind-bogglingly far-reaching in its implications. But it's very simple. Prayer moves God to change people's wills. Now, here's the way I want to unfold it for you, just to help you see it. I want to take you to the book of Acts and watch God answer this prayer when Paul gets to Jerusalem. This is exciting, so let's do it this way. If you want to go with me and see it in your own Bible, turn to Acts chapter 23. No, 21 will start. Acts chapter 21. Now remember the situation. We know from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, other places in Romans, that Paul has been collecting money from Macedonia and Achaia and the various churches. And I don't know how they carried money in those days, but I bet he had a big band of men around him to protect him. And it was probably cash of some kind in the Roman coin and they were on boats, and and he was moving there, and he was going to hand it over to the apostles there in in Jerusalem. It was to be distributed to the church. That was his ministry. So he wondered, what would it be like when I get there? Will I be killed by my enemies, and will will I be rejected by my my friends? Acts 21.30 gives the bad news to start with. Verse 30. Of Acts 21, and all the city was roused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Mob violence, stop there, mob violence is a horrible thing. That's a horrible thing, it's almost uncontrollable. And here's a mob, Stirred up like the mob against Jesus, dragging him out of the temple because they think he's taken some unbelievers, I mean some Gentiles in there, which, we, which he didn't, and they're about to beat him and kill him. Now, the question is, is anybody praying in Rome? 1300 miles between Jerusalem and Rome as the crow flies, and prayers sort of go as the crows fly. Actually, prayers do a big triangle up into the 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 satellite of heaven back down again that's the way that's the way prayers work they go like this so it's more than 1300 miles but you got people in Rome reading the book of Romans now and they're praying god he asked that we would pray that he'd be delivered from his enemies the disobedient in Jerusalem and so they gather they're praying, oh god do it and god doesn't look like he's doing it But then something gives. Verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, they were seeking to kill him. wasn't working. They weren't succeeding. Somebody didn't hit him just right by willing the stone to fly at the right speed in the right way. Somebody didn't get at him with a dagger just yet. Why? Why? What acts of willing were being restrained here? And then verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, Report came up to the commander. How do reports get up to the commander? Acts of willing bring reports to the commander. Somebody willed. Somebody was standing there watching this, and instead of saying, do it, do it, do it, they suddenly felt like, this might get out of hand. I better go tell the commander. And later that day, that afternoon, they might have thought, why did I do that? An act of will, an act of will brought a person up to the the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. In verse 32, at once he took some soldiers. Why he do that? Why didn't he just say, well, forget that. It's just a Jewish rabble down there. They can handle their own problems. I've got big things to handle in the Roman. I don't have to do this. And he didn't have to do it. Why did he do it? Why did that act of will occur in his soul? Somebody's praying and God's moving. That's why. So someone willed to run and tell him. The commander willed that he go down with his soldiers. And then we get the big act of will here at the end of verse 32. And when they saw the commander, when this mob saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped. They willed to stop. Why? Why didn't they say, phooey on this Roman commander? We have every right to kill this blasphemous Jew here. We are going to kill him. Many mobs have responded to police that way. But they didn't respond that way. Why? God answered prayer. So God is moving in response to praying on the wills of unbelievers, restraining He's moving into their minds and into their hearts, and he's doing what needs to be done to bring them this far and no farther. And I'm sure Paul asked many times, why that far, Lord? <laughs> why that far? Why the stoning? Why the beating? Why the mob? You could have stopped him a half an hour earlier. And that's God's business. He has things to do in the life of his apostle Paul through this, as well as things to do in Rome in answer to prayer. So his first answer to prayer is, yes, I will deliver Paul. He's not done yet. Look at chapter 23 in the book of Acts. You remember what happened now? He's in jail. Time has passed. The Jews don't give up on Paul here, at least the unbelieving Jews. And they want to, form a conspiracy, to kill him. And so they plot in a house, probably, one night and say, when he comes out in the morning, we're going to have 40 people ready to kill him. And they made a vow not to eat until they killed him. Now, is anybody praying in Rome? Is anybody saying, oh Lord God, Paul asked us to pray. Now this is several, this is, the time has passed. We still need those prayers. Lord, today, for our missionaries, do it today. There's a threat today on their faith. There's a threat today on their lives and their health and their children. Do it today, Lord. Anybody praying over the miles toward Africa and Asia, South America? Well, there was, evidently, because you know what happened? A little boy, a little boy has his will inclined to be near where they are making this conspiracy. And he overhears it, of all things. God, inclining the heart of a little boy, perhaps it's in his parents' house, or maybe he was visiting a friend, or I don't know how he heard this, but he hears, verse 16 of Acts 23, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, there are two amazing things in that. One is that he was at the right place at the right time, and the other is that he had the courage to get involved. I'll tell you, if I was a little boy, and I don't know how old this little boy is, he'd called a young man in a minute, um, if, I, if I'm there and I see 40 people with weapons plotting to murder somebody the next morning. I'll tell you, my heart is going like this. And I am saying, I just better steer clear of this situation. For a little boy to have the courage to go to a jail and ask permission to see his uncle Paul took some willing. Where'd that come from? That's prayer. That's prayer. 1,300 miles away coming into play. Let's read the rest of it. Verse 13. Watch, watch all the acts of willing that God performs here to rescue Paul from this conspiracy. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him. There, there you have the centurion being agreeable to Paul's request, which he didn't have to be. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to this, uh, to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him. He didn't have to do that. He said, I got no time for a little boy. But he didn't say that. Why? God's moving in answer to prayer. What is it to you, that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him and now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Now would you, would you, would you risk your reputation to involve 200 soldiers on the word of this kid? I mean, there must have been a lot in his will to say, look, kid, you may be right, but I'd make an absolute fool of myself if on your word I pulled together protection and, and it's and it, pointless. So, uh, in fact, I don't care much about this Paul anyway, and so if he gets killed, there's no skin off my nose. But he didn't do any of that. Why? God's at work. Because people are praying. So he called to him two centurion, two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. <laughs> so we see the influence of God on the will of a little boy to see something at the right time, to have the courage to follow through, a centurion to go to the commander, the commander to say yes to the boy, the commander to gather together hundreds of people, and Paul was spared and saved, and he did get to Rome, and the prayers were answered. So I draw the conclusion so far that when we pray, that God will deliver people, we are implying that he has the right and the authority and the power to intrude in their lives and influence and change their wills. Now, you asked the question and I asked the question, what about the believers? How did they receive Paul? And the answer to that is given in 21 Acts 21.17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren... That's the believers. The brethren, the believing Jews, received us gladly. So there it is. The prayers worked. They received him gladly. And Paul didn't have to experience the rejection that he was fearing because they prayed and God worked and the hearts changed. Now, this brings us to Wednesday night. For those of you who've been in the BITC for some months, know that we're talking about the providence of God. That's what we're seeing here. The providence of God moving sovereignly, working, putting people where he wants them, inclining their wills to do the things that he wants done, letting their ill will go so far and then no farther And sparing his apostle to put him where he wants him through the tribulations that he wants to bring him. And providence is always ruling over the world. That's what we've been seeing on Wednesday nights. And this Wednesday night, we're getting to that very point where the issues of what about the human will? What about the accountability of man? And that's what we'll be taking up Wednesday night at 645 in this room. Let me close with um, three exhortations. You need to ask right now, do you believe what I've just said? Do you believe that the Bible teaches that prayer moves the power of God to change people's wills? You are not sovereign, God is sovereign. You are not ultimate, God is ultimate. You are not autonomous, but dependent. And so is everybody in the world. Do you believe that? If you believe it, three things follow. Number one, let us stand in awe of our God. Let us stand in awe of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. To rule over the governors and the kings and the centurions and the commanders and the soldiers and the mobs and the little boys. Let's stand in awe of a God like this and pray to him and trust him and love him and lean on him and count on him to fulfill his promises in our lives. Stand in awe of God. Number two. Let us be glad that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of love, according to verse 30 in Romans 15. So that when we pray, we don't just think of power. The Lord Jesus Christ moving on the wheels of people to restrain or to advance. We think of a Holy Spirit who is loving, coming upon a church and gently saying, Love my Apostle. Love him when he gets here. Receive him gladly. Do not feel hostile toward him. Let there drain away from you right now all bitterness, all pride, all resentment, all one-upmanship. I now sovereignly pull the plug on that and I nurture the fruit of love and joy in you. We can pray with a deep sense of resting that we have a God whose spirit is a spirit of nurturing and love. And that he will pour himself out on people. Finally, very practically, do not neglect the world shaping influence that you have through prayer. God calls you Christian, and calls you, Christian, to join Him in shaping history. By prayer, we are to change the wills of presidents, senators, representatives, governors, mayors. By prayer, we are to change the wills of university professors in what they believe and what they teach. Editors, entertainers newscasters. By prayer, we are to change the wills of our children in their rebellion. Our parents who are not yet believing. Our brothers and our sisters who are outside Christ and estranged. Our loved ones who have left their wives or husbands. By prayer, we are to change our neighbors. We are to change the people we care about. Prayer is the means by which we beseech and entreat God to move into people's lives and change them. If God can't do that, I'm not going to pray anymore. What's the point in praying? If God can't move on people's wills to incline them one way or the other, what's the point in praying? At least for people. Pray for molecules. But it's only people I care about And a woman come up after the last service. I'm done, but let me throw this in because it was good that she said this. Uh, She came up and she said, Now, does, does what you said apply to people who have rebelled against the Lord and have hardened their heart against Him? And have set their wills against Him. And I said, Yes! That's the only kind of people I'm talking about. Meaning, In the lives of those people that we care about, that seem so far gone, so hardened, so resistant, so rebellious, have exerted their presumed autonomy so hard and so high against the Lord, the only hope is prayer. The only hope is that God would reach in sovereignly and crack the window of that closed heart so that light flows in and a little taste of the desirable glory of the Lord is tasted by a miracle of God and they suddenly awaken to what they're missing and begin to widen the door a little more and more goes in and it widens and they drop their rebellion. In other words, the question of prayer is can God overcome rebellion? Can God overcome rebellion if he cannot you would not be saved I would not be a Christian there are not two classes of people those who are opposed to God and those who are innately for God there is only one class of people children of wrath people whose wills are rebellious and hard against God Therefore, there's only one reason any of you is in this room. God moved when somebody prayed. And he did not. This is what she was concerned about. He did not drag you against your will into the kingdom. Nor will he ever. He reasonably and he rationally gave you enough glimpse of the trustworthiness of Jesus and the desirability of forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life and a life of fellowship with the living God that your defenses began to fall away and your heart became soft and you opened yourself up to Him as He revealed more and more. You remember the story of Peter when he confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What Jesus said to him at that moment? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6, Let him who said, let that beautiful sunshine shine this morning, shines in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When that happens, your resistance is overcome. Some of you sit there right now thinking that you are God. I'm God. I have a will. I can stop him or I can let him. You don't ultimately control the universe. Human beings do not write the enrollment of heaven. We do not hold God hostage by our unbelief, determining how many He will enjoy in His kingdom forever. God reigns over your will. And right now, I want to close by praying that God would move and that you would yield and that you would join me in praying. It's our only hope for the world. And there'll be prayer teams here at the end. And if anything in your will needs prayer, And if you want prayer for anybody else's, we'll pray afterwards. Lord, I just pray now with all my heart for unbelievers in this room whose hearts are still resistant to the beauty of Christ and to the death of the Son of God and to the resurrection of King Jesus and to the reign of Him at the right hand right now, are resistant to that, are are still swearing allegiance to their own autonomy and their own independence and self-reliance to get where they want to go. Oh God, I pray that you would overcome that resistance right now. And that you would reveal the beauty of Christ irresistibly. And that you would woo them and draw them out of darkness into light and out of death into life. And raise them from the dead and put a new heart afresh into their soul. And take out the heart of stone and incline them to follow you. Lord, none of us takes credit ultimately for our new birth we have been born again because the spirit blows where he wills blow holy spirit on this room even as people are leaving be blowing in jesus name i pray and all the people said amen thank you for listening to this resource from desiringgod.org if you found it helpful We encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.